All right, how y'all doing? All right, this side's doing better than this side is what I got from that. So, hey, I'm glad that y'all are here. I'm excited that you're here because this series, at least in my, to me personally, I think I, I've seen uh, my worship go to another level like I haven't in a while, just to be honest, just because I've been profoundly impacted just through studying uh, the things that we're talking about in the Old Testament. I know most of us don't get that excited about the Old Testament, let alone Leviticus, but today I hope that you have some keys unlocked. In fact, no matter where you are in your faith and understanding of uh, the Bible and of God, I hope today to be able to unlock some of those for you. And I want to make sure that I'm clear that it's perfectly acceptable if you're new to church, maybe you've just decided to follow Christ, maybe you've just walked into uh, church for the first time, to start simply with Jesus and start simply with the New Testament and that Jesus died on a cross for your sins. That is a great place to begin. But I will tell you that as you progress in your faith, as you mature, as you desire to seek and know God, there is something powerful about going into the Old Testament and learning about what God's heart is for his people. Now, last week we kind of introed this. In the first two weeks, I just want to overview this series real quick so you'll understand where we're going. These first two weeks have really just kind of been an introduction to uh, the, what we call the Torah. And when we say the Torah, we mean the instructions, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, okay? And in the Torah, God, what we said last week is that God's heart is revealed. He, he, from the very first story in Genesis, we see the heart of God beginning to be revealed. And today, what I think is the most important part of seeing God's heart in the Torah is what I want to talk about. We're going to talk about the presence of God, okay? We're going to talk about God with us. Now, I want to get there, though, by starting with an experience that most of us, I think, have had. Now, I could be on an island, but it, it's not unusual for me to, to be in a place that y'all can't relate to. But have you ever walked into a, a room and known that you don't want to go into that room? For example, have you ever been, let's say, on a vacation and you have to go to the bathroom and you know I got to go to the bathroom, but I don't want to walk into that bathroom? In fact, have you, some of us will even skip over bathrooms we have to go into, but we know I'm not going into that bathroom. Y'all have had this? No, y'all just go into any, y'all go, okay, good, okay. Now, have you ever, uh, maybe it's not a public bathroom. That can be extremely disgusting. Have you ever had a room in your own home that you're like, you know what? At this moment right now, I don't even want to go into that. Some of us clean our house before we all go on vacation. And if you forget, have you ever forgot to clean your house or you didn't have time or whatever? And you're coming home from your vacation and you just have this thought, I don't even want to go into my house. I don't even want to know what is behind those walls because I've been on vacation away from it. And now I don't even want to go into this junk. Have you ever had in your own house that experience? Okay, a few of you are playing along with me. I thank you. Now, have you ever skipped going into somebody else's house because you know, I'm not, I just don't even want to go over to their house. Maybe it's got a weird smell. Maybe it's got, hey, some of y'all are way too quick. Maybe you know there's been sickness in that house, so you're like, I'm not even going over to their house at all. And uh, some, some people might not be aware. There are people in this place probably that somebody's not come over to your house because they thought, man, it's just filthy or they've had sickness or something in your house. And you may not even be aware of it. 
You know, what I think is probably the most power, one of the most powerful expressions of love I've ever seen is when I had some volunteers from this church come over and clean my dirty house. And it happened after my son was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, and we were in the hospital all week, and I came back, and it had just been a rough week. And we got home. We still came to church, and we got home that day, and some ladies showed up and just started cleaning our dirty house. And it was hard to watch because they were insistent, Joel, you just sit there. Just, y'all just don't clean. Just, and it's hard to watch somebody clean your dirty house. Because you just know that just it's it's very intimate, and, and you'd also know that they're gonna find all the stuff you were hiding, right? All the stuff you didn't want, or the stuff that you ignore. It's so dirty, I don't even want to clean that. And they're gonna be the ones that actually clean that. And so today, I want to introduce the book of Leviticus by starting with this topic of what happens when God cleans your house. What happens when God cleans? Your house. There's nothing, I think, more beautiful of a picture than when somebody cleans your dirty house. Now, before we get there, though, before we can get to Leviticus today and just give you a, a picture of this book that many of us avoid, we're going to have to go through uh, the book of Exodus, which in the Bible, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and then there's Numbers is the next book. By the way, Numbers in the Hebrew Bible is called In the Wilderness. Don't you think that's a better title than Numbers? I'd read a book called In the Wilderness. Numbers, though, we'd skip it. And then there's Deuteronomy, who knows what that means. And so we just kind of put this book aside, these books aside. There's a book called Exodus, and it's kind of laying the groundwork for what God is going to do in people, okay? And one of the things we see in this book of Exodus is something that we saw in Genesis that we see in Leviticus that we see throughout the entire Bible, and that is we see the heart of God is that God wants to be near us. God wants to be with his people. You see this in the book of Exodus by, uh, in fact, I'm going to give you uh, just one verse to kind of give you this picture. It's Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 6. I'm going to read some context um, in verse 4 and 5. But I want you to just kind of see the picture that we have of what God desires for you and I. It says, you yourselves, he's talking to the Hebrew people. He says, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore on you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. I brought you to myself. And now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's promise, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then he says this, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This idea, I think, is the picture of the book of Exodus of what God is trying to achieve. A kingdom of priests. Now, let's be honest. The word priest has been sullied in the last few years in this country and in this world. But the word priest is a powerful picture. A priest, is, in this context, is supposed to be someone who can stand in the presence of God. Someone who can just enter into the presence of God. And so God says, I don't want just to select people. I have a vision that we have a kingdom of priests that every single one of you can be in my presence. And then he says, and you're going to be a holy nation that is a separate nation. People are going to look at you and say, wow, there's something about somebody who's been in the presence of God. There's something about these people. They obey, they follow God, not as if they, they have to or they'll be crushed. They follow him just because they're so close to him. They're just kind of family to him. 
And this is what God says to Moses. He says, this is my vision for you is I just want you to be able to be with me. And I want people to notice what it's like when you're with me. And by the way, you see this throughout the entire Bible. There's some powerful things that you see if you really get into the text. In the the book of Genesis, the first, very first uh, story we hear of, of Adam and Eve. You ever notice that, or thought, why did God create Adam and Eve? And you know, the reason he created them was just to be with them. He just created them to be with them. The heart of God in the Torah is God wants to be near you. The very first thing he does is create people just to be near them. And then what we sometimes miss is the people immediately, they, they disobey, they kind of separate themselves, and God defaults, not at justice, not at vengeance, God's default is to cover their sin. His default, his, his number one position is mercy. The first thing he does when they rebel in the Garden of Eden is he takes an animal and he they're trying, they're, they're naked and ashamed. They weren't naked and not ashamed. But as soon as they rebelled, they, they all of a sudden, they felt this shame and sin. And the first thing that God's heart does is, I want to be with you. And he covers their shame. He covers it by taking an animal. And he, the first time we ever see death in the Bible is when God covers the shame of his people. Think about that. His default reaction is, I want to be near these people, even if it means... I have to cover their sins. His default is he wants to be with you. His default is not, when are they going to screw up? When are they going to screw up so that I can smite them and be done with them? That is not his default. But sometimes he's pushed in to that position. But the thing we're going to see is the heart of God is he wants a kingdom of priests. He wants to be near. I'm reminded of just yesterday, my wife is working and so... uh, most of my kids, three of the four, the three boys, have no problem saying, hey, dad, we're going to be in our rooms. We're going to be here. We're gonna, we, we'll, we'll let you know if we need you. But Annie, my daughter, comes up to me. She grabs up, and I'm trying to make breakfast yesterday. She grabs my uh, leg, and she says, hey, dad, I'm just going to follow you around all day today. And that's what she does. She just grabs me, and I'm like, oh, that's fantastic. That's great. And I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm cooking bacon, and I've got like frying grease, and she's like, won't, and she's like, I just want to be near you today. And I'm like, oh my gosh. That's kind of how God defaults. He defaults with wanting to be near us. And you see it throughout the Bible that we screw it up, but he defaults. God wants to be near you, and you see it even in the Old Testament, even in the Torah. But we screwed it up. Now, how did we do this? We've already said Adam and Eve is a picture of that. And if you read the book of Genesis, what you're going to see is that God wants to be near you and it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it always gets worse and worse until you get to Genesis chapter 11. And then it's really bad. And God says, we're going to do something else. I'm going to take a man. I'm going to make that into a nation. And then I'm going to make this nation into a holy people. And I'm going to, I'm going to start it over with a new kind of vision. And this new vision is where we find ourselves. And in the same conversation that Moses is having where he says, I want you to be a priest. I want you to be in my presence. That's what I want. We see that it's not there yet. Same conversation is happening on a place called Mount Sinai. The Lord said to Moses, this is verse 10, go to the people and consecrate them. That is, get them ready for today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. It's very interesting. You will see this third day foreshadowed a lot in the Old Testament. Be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. 
And you shall say to the people, now this seems like a good thing, right? God wants to be with us. He's come to this man who's representing a nation and he says, hey, good news, I'm gonna be with you. But the first thing he has to say to them is you shall set limits all, um, for the people all around saying, take care not to go up to the edge of the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the edge of the mountain will be put to death. He says to him, hey, get ready because in three days I'm coming. Uh, to, my presence is gonna be all over this mountain. By the way, you can't touch the mountain. You see, God has this dilemma that you and I are very familiar with. If you've ever uh, been on a vacation with a kids, you have this dilemma where you're so excited you're going to get to go on a vacation with your family and you sit down and all of a sudden the whining and the complaining starts and you have this mindset of, I'm happy to be with my kids, but I really don't want to be with my kids. Anyone? Just me? Okay. Maybe uh, you've been, your parents, you got in the car and you could detect that your parents were taking you somewhere there. They seemed happy to take you, but they weren't really happy to take you. It's like they want you to be there, but they don't want you to be there. It's kind of that dilemma, okay? So God's in this dilemma. He, is, he wants to be with you, but every time he's around sinful people, it, it takes him out of his default of wanting to be, of, of being able to be with you. It puts him into the default of, I have to be the judge. I have to punish the same way as I'm such a easy, go, love it, go lucky father. But I get in the car with all my kids and they're, they're, you know, talking back and they're doing all this stuff. And it takes me out of this fun loving father. And it just makes me into a person I don't want. I don't want to be my whole vacation or my whole trip to the, the restaurant. I don't want to be back there having to correct and having to do this. It pulls me out of who I am. And, and God is feeling this. And so there's this dilemma of God is so holy, so perfect that anytime sinful people get near him, we are killed. And it's hard to understand, but all of us know this. In fact, I scoured YouTube and I found a documentary footage to prove my point. So go ahead. I just want to say, now this could be hard for some of y'all to watch, okay? That's not it. Oh my gosh, my documentary is footage. Oh, here we go. Yes. Oh, I got no volume. Never mind. Oh. This is what happens in the presence of God, okay? Y'all aren't. No, I thought it was funny. All right. Anyway, the point being, we can't be in the presence of God, and I'm not going to make you watch the guy's face melt or blow up, okay? If you haven't seen that movie, you got to, hey, don't come. You got to. Are you kidding me? How dare you in this church ask what movie that was? That is some good biblical archaeology right there. You can't be in the presence of God, okay? If, you're in the, if, holy, if unholy people are in the presence of God, we die. In that, and it's because God is so holy. It's kind of like approaching the sun. The sun would be so, it's so perfect. It's so powerful. That we need it, but we can't be in it. You can't be in it. You, have, you can't look at it. It's powerful. One of the things the, the writer of Hebrews says, he says, what a fearful thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. So God has this dilemma. How is he going to solve this dilemma? He wants to be near us. He wants to be near us, 
but he can't be near us. And so the best thing he can do with Moses is he can bring Moses away. And Moses isn't seeing God or anything, but he can talk to Moses. He writes these, uh, these instructions on tablets and and he's communicating with Moses. Then Moses says this thing. He says, hey, I want to be, I want to see your face. And now God is spirit. He doesn't have a face, but he says, listen, if you do this, if you see him, it's going to change you, okay? And so God gives Moses this experience. This is in Exodus chapter 33. And he lets his glory pass by. And then from then on, whenever Moses wanted to meet with God, Moses would do something unusual. He would go out way far away from the, the people. From the, the people had a camp. They were out in the wilderness. The people would, would be in their camp and Moses would walk way far away from the people and he would make a tent. He would make just a regular tent. And, you know, when you're in a camp, you've got the tent of food, you've got the tent of, you know, whatever, of games. I don't know what they had. But he has the tent of meeting, but he doesn't keep it in the tent or in the camp. He takes it as far away because sometimes what would happen was God would, his glory would come, a cloud would come, and it would cover this tent. He would come near this tent that's way far, way far away from the sinful people. And Moses could interact with God. But he had to go way outside of the tent and he couldn't be near the people. And so when you read Exodus, you begin to see, in fact, some of us, we love the story of the Exodus, but if you've ever read the whole book, about right after he gives the Ten Commandments, the book changes, okay? Because the entire rest of the book is the new solution that God is going to fix with this new covenant, how God is going to be with us. And you know what his big solution is, and instead of having to go way outside the camp and meet in a tent, you know what God's big solution? Here, let's get the drum roll. Everybody help me out. All right, I'm just trying to build it up. His big solution is this, another tent. Okay, no one really cared. It was just underwhelming, okay? They called it the tabernacle. But he, God says, listen, I got, a, I got a better idea. Instead of the tent of meeting way out there, I'm going to make a tabernacle. And by the way, tabernacle means tent. It means tent or dwelling, okay? We're camping, and God says, I'm going to make a better tent. This tent, I've got a picture of this tent. In fact, John and I were able to see, uh, and this is actually a replica that's been made. This is in uh, the wilderness where they were. And he makes a tent, and this tent has a courtyard, a fence around it. And then it's got this tent, and you know what's inside the tent? Another tent. That's right. It's a super tent, okay? It's a tent within a tent, okay? They call it the Holy of Holies. But what's interesting about this is right here, instead of being way far away, the tabernacle is in the center of camp. It's in the midst of the people. It's God saying, I got a better, I got a better plan than you having to come all this way and get away from me. I'm going to be in the midst of you. But we find another dilemma. Exodus chapter 40, the last chapter of Exodus. They're finally, they've got it built. We've spent like 15 chapters where God's telling you how to make this tabernacle, how to make this um, tent so awesome. And most of us are like, I don't really care what kind of wood it's made out of or this and that. But understand, this is the solution. That's why Exodus is a big deal. That's why it, it, the solution is that God is going to dwell in the midst of his people. The problem is, it says in verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yay! 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Uh Uh-oh. We're in the midst of the people. God is there, but no one can enter into the tabernacle. No one, not even Moses, who used to. Because now we're surrounded by sinful, rebellious, dirty people. And God's presence can't dwell and won't dwell in the midst of sinful, unholy people. But there's a conundrum here because if we fast forward to the book of In the Wilderness or the book of Numbers, we skip over. Numbers chapter 1 begins like this. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So the tent of meeting in the tabernacle. So we end Exodus. God has this great idea. I'm going to dwell in your midst. And I'm going to be in the middle of the camp, but no one can come see me. But something happens in between Exodus and the beginning of Numbers to where all of a sudden Moses can come into the tent. He can be in the midst of God. He can talk to God in the midst of the people. What happened? Leviticus happened. If you want to know what's so powerful about Leviticus, Leviticus is the solution to The tabernacle problem. Now, the tabernacle is the the solution to the, the, the big problem. The big problem is this. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? The problem that God is finding is how can a holy God who wants to dwell with his people, how can he dwell in the midst of an unholy people? So a solution is the tabernacle. I can be in this tabernacle, but no one can go near it. I still can't dwell. So the solution to that It's Leviticus. I'm going to make some rules of how to approach the tabernacle. I'm going to make some some laws or instructions on how you approach a holy God so that you won't be smited. So that's what the book of Leviticus is. When you read Leviticus, you're getting a picture of what God wants. You're not getting the full picture, remember. It's just a picture of what God is going to do. We said last week that the the law reveals the heart of God, but that Jesus fulfilled the heart of God. So it's not fulfilled yet, but we're seeing it. God wants to tabernacle in the midst of us. And so he comes up with a solution, and the solution is really threefold. He's going to make some priests. He's going to set some people apart who are going to live the way everyone should live, and symbolically. He's going to make some priests, and Moses is going to be one of those that's going to live in a way in which he can, he can do this. They're going to be pure, and by pure it doesn't mean sinless. It means they're going to keep themselves ritually clean or spiritually clean so that whenever they, you don't have to be clean all the time, but whenever you approach the tent, you have to be, you have to have bathed, you have to have avoided certain things. You have to take caution when approaching the throne of God or when approaching the tabernacle. But the thing I really want to show you today is this third way that uh, part of this, and that is there are going to be some sacrifices, or more importantly, there are going to be some offerings made. Now, when we think of offerings, especially as Christians, we think that Jesus was an offering for us, that Jesus uh, died on the cross for our sins. Okay, now that's not wrong. But what I, I hope to show you, I think that this can unlock so much about how we worship as believers. You see, Leviticus reveals a lot about what Jesus did for us on the cross. Now, these, there were five uh, offerings that, were, that are laid out at the very beginning of Leviticus. There are five of them. They are the burnt offering 
Okay, then you've got the grain offering, then you've got the peace offering, then the sin offering, and the guilt offering. You don't need to know those, but I do want to let you know, when, when you do dive into them, each of those shows you an aspect of what Christ did for us on the cross. But what's interesting is only two of those even mention the word forgiveness. Only two of those offerings have anything to do with sin. Three, the first three, not only are not given because of sin, they're given because they're trying to accomplish that purpose of God. They're trying to bring the presence of God into the tabernacle. And in fact, all of them have something in common, and that is whenever there is an animal involved, they'll take the blood of the animal and they'll sprinkle it on the altar. And they'll sprinkle it wherever the priest goes. And when they do this, they make this comment that they are atoning the house of God. Now, when was the last time any of you used the word atonement, not in church? Probably never. Now, for them, they would have used this word a lot because the word simply means clean or cover. Okay, So they would use this blood to clean the house, to clean the house of God. That's the purpose of all of these. Now, all sacrifices, even listen to this. The first one, the burnt offering, is always going. They would take the blood, they would cover it. I know, just hang with me a second. The grain offering, they would burn the grain offering and everything would get burnt on the offering. And then when, when it's burnt, it's consumed by God. But the other portion in some of these would be eaten by the priest, symbolically saying, this is what I want. I want to have a barbecue. I want to have a meal with you. And so the priest would eat part of it and God would have part of it. And if it was offering it because you had done something wrong or you thought you might have done something wrong, then by you offering this, the presence of God, the house is clean and God's presence would be there. And so if you had offered it because of a sin, God would forgive you because his presence is with you. And if you were just doing it because you wanted to, to be thankful to God, if it was a peace offering, then it was the same thing, except for it doesn't mention forgiveness. It's just doing this so that you'll know God is with you. God is with you. Every one of these sacrifices, they take the blood. Every time there's a sacrifice, they take the blood and they cover the, the tabernacle, the tent where God is residing, and they clean it. And here's the thing, is there's not one time, well, actually there's one time in the Old Testament where the sins of people are put onto an animal. It only happens one time, and it never happens in a sacrifice, no, no, not once in these sacrifices does it say that God is putting our sins onto the animal that's being killed. Instead, what it says, now they would put their hands on it and they would, they would symbolically say, I understand this. But the only time that God ever takes an animal and says, your sins are being put on this, was in Leviticus chapter 16, the scapegoat. And he doesn't kill that goat, he drives it out into the wilderness, kind of like they did with the tabernacle. They just get this goat, they would do a little ceremony, say, hey, all our sins, or they confess their sins, all our sins are now on this goat. And then they kick the goat, sometimes they'd throw it off a cliff just to make sure it didn't come back into their camp. That's not a lie. And so... Goats can climb on cliffs, though, so maybe they got, I don't know, maybe they lived. But the idea being that the goat was sent away, the sin was sent away. And you know what they would do as soon as they got rid of the sin that was transferred on that scapegoat? They would go back to the tabernacle, they would have a sacrifice, and it specifically says they would atone the house of God. The sin has been sent away, let's clean the house of God so that we will know in this house it is clean. And if it's clean, the presence of God is in the tabernacle. The presence of God is in 
the tent. Now, even in the New Testament, I want you to understand that the Jewish believers understand this, okay? You and I may not see sacrifices. They don't make as much sense. Hebrews chapter 9 says this, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that are offered cannot perfect the conscience of, a worker, of the worshiper. It says you can't offer something and you be clean. The worshiper is not cleaned. The house is cleaned. Hebrews 10 says it is impossible for the blood of goats to take away sin. The blood of goats in these sacrifices is not taking away the sin. The scapegoat is. The blood of these animals is cleaning the house of God so that the tabernacle can stay in the midst of the people. Does that make sense? Y'all just shake your head in that way. Now, this is a big idea because that's the solution that God has in the law. The heart of God, I want to be with you, but I can't because you guys are sinful. And so you've got to clean the house of God. And the way that you clean it is serious. The life was in the blood. That's what they believed. Um, every Hebrew thought had the life was in the blood. So the life would be given back to God to clean the offering. And that's why when John, the disciple, the best friend of Jesus, talks about Jesus coming to earth, coming to be with us, he says something interesting. In John chapter 1, verse 14, he says this, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now you may say, my, my, my Bible says dwell among us, but the word in Greek, skeneo, means tabernacle. The word became flesh. Jesus came and tabernacled among us. And it is a direct reference of, listen, what God was foreshadowing the whole time is that God was going to be in our midst. And now we have Jesus. And when he comes, the first thing they say is, God is tabernacling with us again. And we see this, this has been the, the point the whole time. While Jesus is with people, he keeps saying things like, hey, the kingdom of God is here because he's here. The fulfillment of what was been promised was here. And whenever his disciples would, would start asking questions, he'd say, hey, don't worry about what's going to happen then. Worry about right now. I'm here right now. And then there's a story of Mary and Martha, and he gets on to one of them because the Mary, Martha's just cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. She's ignoring the presence of Jesus. But he says, you know what? Mary, she's got it right because I'm here. Jesus was God tabernacling. He's God tabernacling in our midst. But as he goes through his ministry, he never says it is finished until the very end of his ministry. In other words, it's been being foreshadowed. It's being foreshadowed over and over again, but it's not fully complete. See, at the end of his life, Jesus began to paint a new picture of what it's really going to look like when God's desire to dwell among his people, what it's really where this has all been leading from the beginning. You see, he takes some bread in a meal called the Passover, he takes this bread and he says, my body is broken for you. That's a picture of the sacrifice, okay? I'm about to be sacrificed for you. But then he takes a cup and he says, this cup is poured out. Is the new covenant in my blood. This is a powerful moment for them. But I want to ask you a question. If the Old Testament sacrifices were cleaning the tabernacle of God, and now we have Jesus who is the tabernacle of God, and he's 
pouring out his blood, but yet he's going away. What is his blood cleaning? What is the tabernacle that Jesus is, that this covenant is cleaning? That this new covenant, it's kind of a mystery. He says, this is the new covenant, but he's pouring out his blood and the blood cleans the house. And so when we look back at God's word throughout, you begin to see this is where it's been going the whole time. Jeremiah chapter 31, 600 years before Christ, this is what the prophet Jeremiah said. The days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them from the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant. He said, this covenant I will make with the house of Israel. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one have to teach his neighbor and say, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what Jesus foreshadows. The tabernacle is the solution to how a holy God can live in the midst of an unholy people. The tabernacle is that. Jesus is the tabernacle. And then he says, my blood is going to be shed because you are the new tabernacle. Now, this is a powerful, profound idea to us who worship Christ. If you want to know what's so exciting about following Christ, most of us think that, man, Jesus died so that I could go to heaven. But we find out that Jesus died so that heaven could come to us. Jesus died so that God could dwell in us. And it's not something that happens in, you know, at the end of time. It's something that happens as soon as we decide. You know what? I want to be cleaned. I want to be the tabernacle of God. I want the Holy Spirit of God inside of me. So when we worship as Christ's followers, we worship as the tabernacle, as the house of God. Jesus Christ lives in us. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. When you ask for forgiveness in the, in the presence of God, God can just forgive it, give you. The reason that God can just forgive us is because he lives in us. It is a powerful, powerful thing to know you are the tabernacle of God. What I want to do to end this message is I want us to participate in the Lord's Supper. In fact, right now I'm going to invite John and a couple of people to start passing out the elements. I'm going to invite the band up to play. Y'all come on up. But as we worship, if you're here and you've never accepted Christ. If you've never, when we say accept Christ, we simply mean follow Christ, trust Christ with our life. Understand that what Christ did for us was he, he sacrificed his body. He was the ultimate scapegoat, took our sins, but he was also the ultimate sacrifice. He cleansed the house of God so that we could have the presence of God within us. If you want to make that decision, you can do that at any moment. You just simply invite Jesus, from now on, I'm going to follow you. It's not a magical prayer. It's not a magical moment. It's a decision. I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to let your blood atone for my sin. I'm going to let your blood clean me. But what I want to do is I want to start reading some passages from the New Testament. And I want you to just notice how the entire point of the New Testament is that Christ is within us. That the, the 
Old Testament has been fulfilled, that the tabernacle is now here, and we know God's presence is within us. Okay, so I'm just going to read some of these, um, and I want you, as you prepare your hearts to receive the Lord's Supper, to understand that Jesus is in you. If you've ever felt far from God, the whole point of all of this is that you're never far from God. He is within you when you're following Christ. This is what John chapter 14 says. Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me. I in you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you from whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. To them who chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches and uh, the glory of this mystery, it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Ephesians chapter three, according to the glorious riches, he may grant you strength with power through the spirit of your inner being so that Christ may dwell, may tabernacle, may make his home in your hearts through your faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend that you may be filled with the fullness of God. In him, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Do you not realize this about yourself that Christ Jesus is in you? Romans chapter eight, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. John, I'm going to have you bring me some elements too. just want us to say a word of prayer, prepare our hearts, and understand as we receive the Lord's Supper, as we take this, we're getting to participate in something that is a powerful picture of how much God loves you, that there's nothing he wouldn't do to be with you. His default is to be with you. And through Jesus, once and for all, we can live in the presence of God. He made you righteous. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare to worship you through the Lord's Supper and through just singing, Lord, I pray that every weight that we brought into this place is lifted off of us. Lord, every one of us who looks at the Old Testament or the laws, instructions that you've given us as a weight. Lord, I pray that you'll remove that from our mind right now and we'll understand that everything you've ever done has been so that you could be in our midst. Your desire is not for us to have to travel and work hard to get outside the camp so that we can be away from our sin, but you wanted to be with us even on our worst day, even in the midst of our, our dirtiness. You wanted to find a way How can a holy God dwell in the midst of unholy people? By the blood of Jesus Christ. 
So Lord, because we are in your midst, we know you have made us clean. And so we worship you. We walk out of here not wondering if you're with us. We walk out of here confident. We worship you confident that you are moving on our behalf, that you are with us in all things. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. When he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood do this in remembrance of me 